0: Right, welcome, thanks for coming along to uh, this particular Centre for Inquiry event there's a few, one or two housekeeping things I need to mention first of all, uh, this event is brought to you by Centre for Inquiry, which is uh, a unit of the BHA and Conway Hall, who've uh, very kindly allowed us to use this uh, venue for free today so my, my thanks to them uh, if the fire alarm goes off Uh, You can leave here and at the back and the symbol outside of the building. Uh, Just a reminder to turn down or turn off your mobile phones if you've got them with you. If you wouldn't mind turning them down, that would be great. Um, The next, I should flag up the next event, uh, on the 26th of October, the next Centre for Inquiry event will be in this room on a Saturday and it's the Halloween event and we've got Deborah Hyde, who's the editor of Skeptic magazine. She's going to be talking about vampires. Uh, we've got Chris French. Many of you will be familiar with Professor Chris French. He's going to be talking about ghosts. Frank Swain uh, from the Forteans is going to be talking about zombies. And Scott Wood is going to be talking about London ghosts. So if you're interested in that kind of thing, these will be fairly sceptical. If you're interested in that kind of thing... Um, do please uh, come along to that event. You can, as you can at all of these events, you can pay on the door, or you will be able to shortly book on the BHA uh, website. So that's the housekeeping. Today's topic is um, scientism. Uh, I'm particularly interested in this topic. Well, I should explain who I am. I'm Stephen Law, I'm a philosopher. I'm the head of the Centre for Inquiry. Um, I've uh, strong interest in this particular topic, scientism. Can science answer every question, solve every uh, mystery? Uh, we have three extremely good speakers for you today. They're going to speak for uh, about 40 minutes each, with PowerPoint, I think, in each case. Then we'll have a 30-minute break um, between uh, 1 and one thirty, So you can go outside and get a sandwich or whatever, between 1 and one thirty. And then from 1.30 to 2.30 there will be a one-hour discussion with plenty of opportunity for Q&A. So think about what question you would like to ask as you listen to our three speakers and then you'll have an opportunity to ask it in that last final hour. There's Newham Bookshop at the back of the hall. They have lots of books, including books written by all of our speakers and indeed myself. And we would all be happy to sign books if you purchase them, obviously. Just approach any one of us at any point. We'll be happy to to sign. Okay, so I'm going to introduce our first speaker, uh, Peter S. Williams, who is a philosopher, like myself, and he's also, not like myself, he's a Christian. Uh, He's a leading Christian uh, apologist and is author of the book C.S. Lewis and the New Atheists. I think we have some of those New Atheists in the room today, and A Faithful Guide to Philosophy. So without uh, more ado, let's hear from Peter, who's going to speak for the first 20 minutes. Okay, thank you.
1: Well, thank you very much. Um, the book stall does have one of my books. It unfortunately doesn't have the, uh, the C.S. Lewis versus the New Atheist book, which is the most recent one. But my previous book on on, uh, popular defences of atheism called A Skeptic's Guide to Atheism uh, is on the bookstall at the back. Um, So there's the plate itself plugging out of the way and now we can turn our thoughts to uh, to higher matters. Um, So can science solve every mystery? Um, I'm going to be taking a position that says uh, no it can't. And indeed, uh, we need uh, philosophy as well as science. And indeed, I'm going to be defending the position that there are uh, particularly uh, religious forms of knowledge uh, to boot. Uh, So that's the position that I'm staking out in this sort of three-way disagreement that we have to lay before you today. I thought I'd start and end with Thomas Aquinas, who of course called theology the queen of the sciences, uh, assisted by her handmaiden philosophy. Of course, back then, the area of study that we now call science was called natural philosophy. Uh, and the Latin word scientia, from which we get our word science, simply meant knowledge or a field of knowledge. So that's a bit of the sort of linguistic uh, background to our conversation, if you like. As Stephen said, I'm both a philosopher and a Christian, so i sort of uh, say a word of definition about those two things. Uh, a Christian, to summarise, I put it like this. A Christian is someone who's dedicated to a Jesus-centred and directed spirituality. A spirituality or way of life. Um, Where, to put it briefly, a spirituality has to do with the integration of your head, your heart and your hands, as it were. Uh, How you think, what you commit yourself to and will and choose and what you do in the world as a consequence. Uh, Christians, of course, fill out that, that generic structure of spirituality in a particular way. And Jesus recommended that true spirituality meant loving God. Uh, with all of your heart, attitudes, all of your mind, including your worldview, all of your strength, your actions, and loving your neighbour as yourself. But even more than that, he taught that entering into what he conceived of as true spirituality meant trusting him, trusting Jesus, as the divine point of access into loving relationship with God. So just a couple of quotes from uh, the New Testament here. Jesus talking about, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. And you'll find rest for your souls. Or uh, from John's Gospel, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me, enters into relationship with God through me, will be saved. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So if a Christian is someone dedicated to a Jesus-centered and directed spirituality... What about being a philosopher? Well, philosophers love definitions, so here's another one. A philosopher, I think, is someone who's dedicated to the wise pursuit and dissemination of true answers to significant, especially very fundamental, questions through the practice of good intellectual habits. Now, some people will think that um, those two definitions uh, mean that uh, you couldn't be both, Uh, Of course, I happen to think that they can comfortably coincide. And you'll notice, given those two definitions, that knowledge is actually a central concern of both Christianity and philosophy. Now the standard philosophical definition of knowledge is something like uh, warranted or justified true belief. And philosophers spend a lot of time arguing about this, of course, especially the nature of warrant and even, indeed, the necessity as opposed to the desirability of warrant for having knowledge. But to ask how we do or how we should go about knowing things in the world is to engage in the philosophical discipline of epistemology. So, with that background in mind, I think I can kind of tee up the question before us this morning. I think it's this. Should our epistemology, our theory of knowledge, should it encompass science alone? Or science and philosophy? Or science and philosophy and theology? As the queen of sciences, as it were. That is, we ask, A, is scientism true? And B, are there specifically religious forms of knowledge or not? My answer is going to be that A, scientism is false, and that B, there are specifically religious forms of knowledge. Now, whereas science is a first order inquiry aimed at obtaining systematic knowledge of physical reality... Scientism is a second-order philosophical theory attributing exclusive competency over-knowledge to scientific methods. And nothing I say here against scientism should, of course, be construed as an attack upon science. But I'm with the philosopher of science, Del Ratch, who I quote here, who says that science cannot validate Either scientific method itself or the presuppositions, the philosophical presuppositions of that method. Those who claim either that science is competent for dealing with all matters or that science is the only legitimate method for dealing with any matter are seriously confused. Well, Victor Stenger, physicist, one of the new atheist writers... Uh, bridles at this really and says critics accuse new atheism of scientism which is the principle that science is the only means that can be used to learn about the world and humanity they cannot quote a single new atheist who said that well what would you make of a writer who issued the following statements that faith is belief in the absence of supportive evidence. That science is belief in the presence of supportive evidence. And that science does not require nor does it use any metaphysics. It would seem to me that someone who says these kind of things uh, qualifies as someone who is uh, enunciating a scientistic position. Of course, all these quotes come from Victor Stenger uh, in his book, The New Atheism. Or Peter Atkins, who will be on stage momentarily in his very readable uh, book, On Being. He says, the scientific method is the only means of discovering the nature of reality. The only way of acquiring reliable knowledge. Which leads to the position enunciated by Stephen Hawking and Leonard Mlodnov in their their book The Grand Design, uh, where they say at the beginning, philosophy is dead. Philosophy is not kept up with modern developments in science, particularly physics, so that scientists have become the bearers of the torch of discovery in our quest for knowledge. As Professor George Ellis, the President of the International Society for Science and Religion, replied in the Times to Hawking, he said, philosophy is not dead. Every point of view is imbued with philosophy. Why is science worth doing? The answer is philosophical. Science can't answer that question about itself. Or, let's look at one test case uh, of scientism in a little bit more length, uh, Richard Dawkins. According to Dawkins, all beliefs fall into one of two categories. On the one hand, there's what he calls proper evidence-based belief. As he says uh, in his book, The Magic of Reality, the only good reason to believe that something exists is if there is real evidence that it does. It always comes back to our senses, one way or another. So by evidence, he means empirical evidence um, that ultimately is grounded in our immediate sensory experience, uh, a very strong form of empiricism as a theory of knowledge. On the other hand, there's the improper methodology of blind faith. As if blind were a redundant qualifier for the term faith. So he says faith is believing in something when there literally isn't a scrap of evidence. If there were a scrap of evidence, then by definition it wouldn't be faith, according to Dawkins. Well, I think this is both a serious misunderstanding of faith... As understood uh, at least within the central Christian tradition, and indeed a misunderstanding of the nature of reason and rationality. And with the Christian theologian Alastair McGrath, who replies that Dawkins' idiosyncratic definition of faith simply doesn't stand up to investigation. In fact, it is itself an excellent example of a belief tenaciously held and defended in the absence of evidence, even in the teeth of evidence to the contrary as McGrath says the classic Christian tradition has always valued rationality and does not hold that faith involves the complete abandonment of reason or believing in the teeth of evidence indeed the Christian tradition is so consistent on this matter it's hard to understand where Dawkins gets the idea that faith is blind trust rather than trust that one thinks is well grounded uh, from as C.S. Lewis put it uh, I had to quote him having just written a book about him um, he defined faith very succinctly as the art of holding on to things your reason has once accepted in spite of your changing moods so I would say that the the self-contradictory scientistic philosophical claim that rational belief requires direct or indirect empirical evidence that claim itself is not a claim that can be justified or warranted by direct or indirect empirical evidence and that's why it's a self-contradictory claim and if something is self-contradictory it cannot be true Also, the scientific philosophical demand that every rational belief must be justified by empirical evidence entails an infinite regress that cannot be satisfied. If you said, well, I'm not going to believe A unless I have some empirical evidence for its truth and uh, for justifying my my belief in it. Um, So let's go to B, uh, the empirical evidence for A. But of course I shouldn't believe that B is indeed empirical evidence for A as it appears to be unless I have some empirical evidence for that and call it C. Um, But of course I shouldn't believe that C as it appears to be is empirical evidence for B and that it really supports it and so on uh, unless I have some evidence for that claim. And you're just digging yourself further and further into the pit of Uh, complete uh, scepticism about everything. In that sense, as I say at the bottom there, scientism is a deeply anti-scientific viewpoint to hold. If you really held to it, you wouldn't be able to do science because the whole project wouldn't be able to get off the ground. And thirdly, the scientific philosophical demand that every rational belief must be justified by empirical evidence is, I think, also open to obvious counterexamples, uh, mainly uh, concerning properly basic beliefs, things like um, these beliefs, which one might well think you would have to believe these things in order to do science, things like the belief that the physical world has an objective existence, things like the physical world didn't pop into existence five minutes ago complete with misleading empirical indicators of apparent age, such as food in your stomach from meals that you've never ate, apparent memories in your brains from events that never happened, tree rings in trees from summers uh, where they never grew. Um, But of course, all of the empirical evidence is, by hypothesis, completely consistent with the, the hypothesis that the world popped into existence five minutes ago, complete with apparent signs of age. And yet, are we not all completely rational to believe that the world is older than five minutes old? Well, of course we are. Uh, That memory is a generally reliable indicator of truth. Um, You couldn't support that belief by doing science. You'd have to remember... um, the results of the experiment as you went through, through it in order to write it up in order to support the hypothesis you, you, you have to rely upon memory, you just know that memory is generally speaking reliable, even to know that it has misled you on occasion you have to rely on it um, that laws of logic such as to say the law of non-contradiction is true, is something that has to be uh, assumed by science and cannot of course be justified by it Uh, moral truths indeed science as a social practice uh, relies upon certain moral standards and so on Um, that there are moral truths such as uh, to use a typical philosophical example it is objectively wrong to torture small children for fun Um, that is not an empirical observation empirically you could tell if you torture small children for fun certain consequences happen But whether or not those consequences or those actions are morally good or bad, that's not something you measure in a test tube or under a microscope. Or aesthetic truths, such as rainbows are beautiful. I think that's true. It's something that obviously doesn't comport with scientism as a theory of knowledge. Indeed, in many scientific fields, particularly sort of cosmological, more mathematical fields of science, scientists will often appeal to beauty uh, as, a, uh, as a standard within science for theory choice. As C.S. Lewis put it, you cannot produce rational intuition by argument because argument depends upon rational intuition. Proof rests upon the unprovable, which just has to be seen If you try and prove that the law of non-contradiction is true and reliable, any proof you try and produce would, of course, rely upon the law of non-contradiction being true, which is to argue in a circle and beg the question and not to prove your point. But nonetheless, we know that the only rational position is to hold that the law of non-contradiction is true. Here's a more modern writer who seems to agree with Lewis in this matter and again I'd like to uh, read you through the quote and then I will reveal who the quote is from this writer says that intuition denotes the most basic constituent of our faculty of understanding while this is true in matters of ethics it is no less true in science when we can break our knowledge of a thing down no further the irreducible leap that remains is intuitively taken Thus the traditional opposition between reason and intuition is a false one. Reason is itself intuitive to the core. As any judgment that a proposition is reasonable or logical relies upon intuition to find its feet. The point I trust is obvious. We cannot step out of the darkness without taking a first step and reason without knowing how Understands this axiom if it would understand anything at all. The reliance on intuition, therefore, should be no more discomforting for the ethicist than it has been for the physicist, says Sam Harris, atheist writer. So there he seems to abandon a theory of knowledge, or the scientistic theory, which elsewhere he will appeal to in order to sort of use as a stick to, to beat uh, those religious people such as myself. Um, indeed, in his book, uh, The Moral Landscape, subtitled How Science Can Determine Human Values, um, he explicitly contradicts his main thesis of the book and the scientistic theory of knowledge that lies behind it. He says this, science cannot tell us why scientifically we should value well-being. The demand for radical justification levelled by the moral sceptic could not be met by science. Science is defined with reference to the goal of understanding the processes at work in the universe. Can we justify this goal scientifically? Of course not. What evidence could prove that we should value evidence? So I am arguing that scientism as a theory of knowledge is false... And consequently, uh, philosophy is not, contra Hawking et al., dead. You know, to say that however detailed our scientific descriptions of physical reality become, such descriptions are by nature incapable of explaining why physical reality has the fundamental structure it has or why any physical reality described by that structure should exist at all, rather than not. That is, science inevitably raises metaphysical questions that require metaphysical answers. Whatever answers you give to those questions raised by science, whether they be metaphysically naturalistic answers or uh, supernaturalistic answers, they are metaphysical Rather than scientific answers, and indeed at this point, and I won't be able to labour this point, but I think it's an important one. I would want to argue that philosophy, uh, and even indeed philosophy in conjunction with uh, premises that are supported by scientific evidence, can warrant a religious world view. I say so I can't spend much time defending this, and it's not the central. Um, uh, aspect of what we 're looking at today so i 'm just going to do a bit of a literature punt quote um, William Lane Craig, who notes that in the last half century that we 've witnessed a, a remarkable resurgence of interest in, in the field of natural theology or arguments uh, for theism, and agree with Alvin plantinger um, who says that there are a number of reasonably strong arguments for the existence of God, and I put up a few examples of good books to pursue there. Um, at least at an introductory level, my uh, new philosophy textbook, A Faithful Guide to Philosophy, contains many chapters on some of these arguments uh, at a much more um, high, uh, you know, non-introductory level, the recent Blackwell Companion to Natural Theology, uh, which is the go-to source at the moment, I would think. But let me uh, come to defending the, um, the, the particular... Um, thing that's going to uh, split myself from our last uh, speaker today, I imagine, in our three-way debate. And that is the contention um, that there are specifically religious forms of knowledge. Uh, Take um, religious experience as a paradigm case here. Uh, Someone having a religious experience, I might want to defend the claim that they can have knowledge Through that religious experience. Perhaps their knowledge is um, God has forgiven my sins or something like this. Now I don't want to wall off such experiences from science and philosophy in a sort of hermeneutically sealed box of its own. So I've put a a number of things around here. Uh, You can see science and philosophy might be thought to establish a worldview context that takes religious experiences seriously. Uh, such that it's not the mere fact that you you're having a certain subjective experience, uh, which in it of itself warrants everything you believe as a religious person. It might well be that you think uh, you have a, a, a background, scientifically and philosophically speaking, that makes taking one's religious experience seriously a, a plausible thing to do. Science and philosophy might well study the nature and content of religious experiences and uh, we do all sorts of interesting MRI scan studies of you know, nuns in prayer and how it changes your brain when you uh, adopt certain religious practices and, th- and so on. Philosophy might be thought to establish the, the properly basic rationality of uh, trusting one's religious experiences in the absence of a sufficient defeater for those experiences. Um, something that uh, Alvin Plantinga who I just mentioned has put a lot of uh, time into enunciating uh, a Christian philosophy of, of properly basic belief. And finally science and philosophy together might be uh, thought to, to be able to use the the existence, the content, perhaps the effects of religious experiences to warrant a religious worldview. those experiences can feature in arguments for God even if one is um, justified in say believing in God absent, An argument based upon one's religious experience, or you think one is justified in trusting that experience in a context that one would defend not by mentioning the experience but by mentioning various philosophical factors. Let me end with three examples of independently verified religious knowledge. First of all it's from the Christian philosopher J.P. Moreland, uh, a philosopher who's done a lot of uh, good writing on particularly the philosophy of mind uh, he's an American philosopher but also uh, a Christian uh, towards shall we say the slightly more charismatic uh, end of the Christian scale and I think this is quite an interesting uh, report from him he was speaking at a conference for Korean Americans and uh, Morland asked God If there was anything he should say to the students. And Morland says that by way of a series of thoughts and images that came to me. He came to believe that God wanted him to say the following. There's a young man here named Mike. And he had a confrontation with his pastor before he came here. And he's continued to blame himself for that confrontation. But it wasn't his fault. It was his pastor's fault. And he needs to share with his pastor how much he was hurt by the confrontation. Now, Morland says he was a bit worried by the fact that he'd never met a Korean-American named Mike. Um, This gave him pause as to whether this was just his own subjective impression. But he says he felt 70-30 that it was from the Lord, and so he shared the word with the group and left for the evening. When he came back the next morning, the conference leader introduced Morland to the only Mike at the conference who had been inappropriately blaming himself for a confrontation he'd just had with his pastor, who'd said some upsetting and untrue things about Mike and his girlfriend and their relationship, I think. The pastor, indeed, was arriving at the conference later that day, and Mike resolved to speak with him. At least prima facie, one would say, it seemed that Moreland had what Christians would call a word of knowledge. He had a religious experience... um, It was a falsifiable, verifiable uh, claim to knowledge. He put it out there, and it did indeed seem to be verified. A more biblical uh, example, as it were, this uh, historian in Wilson uh, notes that it's a straightforward fact of history that Herod's seemingly so permanent temple, which Jesus had predicted would be destroyed within a generation of his time. And we've got uh, references there across uh, the synoptic gospels uh, did indeed suffer this very fate so jesus seems to have made a, a prediction about what happen to the temple and that prediction uh, was uh, empirically verified and you can see a photo there of some of the the, uh, the stones from the temple that were cast down uh, when the romans destroyed it in ad 70 um all of the the gold and so on in the temple they set fire to it and it it the gold melted and ran amongst the stones and the Roman soldiers had to leave all of the stones apart to get, get all the get all the loot, as it were. Um, that's just uh, one sort of dipping of toe into the so-called uh, area of, of uh, fulfilled prophecy that I've got a whole chapter of um, in my book, uh, Understanding Jesus. And thirdly, I thought I'd begin and end with Thomas Aquinas. Thomas Aquinas famously distinguished between Truths known by unaided human reason, and truths known by faith, that is, trust um, in divine revelation. But I want to note about this distinction that unaided human reason might be thought to warrant A, the acceptance of certain religious beliefs, such as the existence of God. Of course, Aquinas gave his famous five ways and so on but also that it might be thought to warrant B, trust trust in the purported revelation. Uh, so it's not necessarily that, that, that one goes well, there are certain things I can know by reason such as I think I know by reason there's a God and I'm just going to trust this holy book for no reason at all. <laughs> um, one needn't, indeed, I think should not do that. So as William Carroll explains, Aquinas thought that it was a matter of biblical revelation that the world is not eternal. He also thought that reason alone, unaided human reason, without the data of revelation, could not conclude whether the world had a temporal beginning. But even if the universe were not to have had a temporal beginning, it would still depend on God for its existence. So, you'll note in the Five Ways of Aquinas, he doesn't give the the kalām type cosmological argument that depends upon there being a beginning, temporally speaking, to the universe. But of course as the atheist cosmologist Alexander Vilenkin said at the, the, uh, the conference in celebration of Stephen Hawking's 70th birthday all the evidence we have says that the universe had a beginning. Um, Aquinas was actually wrong about this. Um, unaided human reason does seem to have warranted the conclusion that the universe had a finite past so Thomas Aquinas knew that the universe had a beginning because he trusted the testimony of divine revelation so to conclude scientism is false and philosophy is not dead I think that philosophy can warrant a religious world view and certainly should feature in our understanding, interpretation of, trust in, any particular revelation claim. And finally, I think that there are specifically religious forms of knowledge, although they're not hermeneutically sealed off from other ways of knowing, that these specifically religious forms of knowledge are instances of warranted or properly basic trust that are distinguished by the religious nature of the object of trust. That is, they are um, trust in religious experiences or claims of divine revelation. Uh, they're not sort of sui generis kinds of knowledge, as it were, but they are nonetheless specifically religious forms of knowledge. Thank you very much for your attention, ladies and gentlemen.
0: Right, we're going to move swiftly on because time is short. Thank you very much indeed to Peter. Um, We now have another Peter, Professor Peter Atkins, who was referred to in the previous talk. I think it's, it's fair to say that you are one of the new atheists. Um, he's a humanist, he's a a very well-known critic of religion, he's also a very well-known critic of uh, philosophy he's written a number of books, he's currently producing five at at this moment, he's he's got five books in production, so he's very prolific you'll find some of his books at the back of the room, on the the table at the back you can purchase his his books and he'll be happy to sign them Um, he's uh, going to talk about scientism, I think he's one of the very few people that will Hold the flag up for scientism. He's going to do so here. He's also known for his tact, of course. It's <laughs> I'm on the receiving end of that myself. So to <laughs> quidex.
2: Well, thank you very much. It's a great pleasure to be here and to see so so many people here interested in the truth. Um, not. Um, I'm sorely tempted to uh, rebut almost everything that um, Peter Wong um, at said, but I suppose I'll have to leave that till this afternoon. I will set out my own stall. Um, I'm not a philosopher. I am a mere working scientist. So from me you cannot ex- expect obfuscation. All you can hope for, I think, is elucidation. And I shall try to deliver that. Um, scientism. I think, first of all, I have to, because this is a world of definition, let me just say what I think is the, the scientific method, uh, which is not just the collection of empirical evidence, although that, of course, is an absolutely crucial part of the um, the procedure that science adopts, and whether it will adopt that in the future is questionable, and people might like to explore that question later on, but certainly a major component is that science proceeds on the basis of evidence collected by carefully controlled observations experiments but it 's not merely that because. Although you can collect evidence, you also need to insert it into a, a matrix of ideas. so there is not only the empirical collection but the, the insertion into the, the reticulation if you like of, of concepts and it 's an extraordinary feature of science that ideas That emerge in one area of investigation are not in conflict with ideas that emerge in another area of conflict. Indeed, it is typical of science that areas where they overlap support one another, rather than, unlike religion, of course, where they overlap, they destroy. But science is enhanced at the overlapping regions. Thus, biology thrives through chemistry and physics, and indeed, in more recent times, through mathematics itself. If you want to discuss the very large-scale structure of the universe, then you have to appeal to information from the very small-scale structure of the universe, the role of fundamental particles. So it is an extraordinary network of mutually supportive theories and concepts, and I think that's quite remarkable. I also think it's um, another point to bear in mind is, although science and scientism might by some, and he did not, not by Peter only, he denigrated only half that, namely the scientism part of it. Um, the um, humanity, I think, should be proud to have stumbled on this really rather obvious way of acquire, acquiring reliable knowledge. That for the past five, five centuries, five or six centuries, um, mankind has really discovered ways of understanding the world. And humanity, in my view, should be simply proud that it has found that way of of pursuing knowledge. That people like Aquinas and other great philosophers simply wasted their time is a matter of regret, but I'm afraid uh, regret is not a part of the evidence of science. Let me get one question out of the way first of all, because it it shows you where scientism begins to emerge from science. Which is that in my view, and some of you might um, deny this or feel uncomfortable with it, there is no reliable question that begins with the word why. Why questions do not lead to reliable knowledge. In order to certainly we use why in form in in informal conversation frequently simply because it saves a great deal of time. Why is the sky blue, for example? But in my view, any reliable why question must be deconstructed into how questions. So Why is the sky blue? Is really a way of saying, How does it come about that the sky is blue? You might say, Why am I here? Why am I bothering to come to talk to you today? But once again, in my view, to get really to the deep truth behind that kind of question. You have to deconstruct that why did you bother to come into how did you come to take the decisions that, you, that led you to coming here today. So science has no track with why questions. It may be that the religious will say you're shutting your eyes to one half of human human curiosity. But I'm arguing that in order to really to understand what you mean by a why question, it must always be deconstructed into how questions. I have no doubt that people will um, um, seek to refute that in any discussion that we have later on, but I believe it to be true. Okay. Uh, By science and scientism... I don't mean that science can currently answer every conceivable question of great importance for mankind. What I do mean is that it is better to proceed in a scientific mode to seek answers than any other type of mode. So what I want to do is to talk through various profound issues, as I've called them on this side, of which one certainly is ethics, to explore whether deeper understanding is likely to come from a scientific approach to answering the questions than simply a philosophical or even worse, a theological approach to um, to seeking answers for them. So uh, ethics, first of all. Um, how would a I'm not quite sure how the word scientism turns, has an analogue of scientist maybe it's a, a scientismist. ist uh, so I am a scientismist. ist um, how does a scientismist ist um, explore the question of ethics, can, can science illuminate ethics well and indeed I think that this was touched on by, by um, in Peter's talk at the end when the standard question of, of torturing children emerged how do a scientismist approach that question well you could either uh, appeal to it by um, going back to holy books and looking for authority from some kind of theological interpretation of sacred texts. Or you could look into um, anthropology and ethology. And in my view, deeply to understand human nature, deeply to understand all the forces that drive people to behave in particular ways, both as individuals and societies, then it is better to explore using empirical observations such as ethological examination of animal colonies and of human colonies and indeed of individuals to understand the roots of human behaviour. What is wrong with that? Why is it better simply to refer to written authority in order to understand modern behaviour? surely it is better to seek the roots of behaviour than to uh, examine, than to simply lie back and accept authority. So a scientismist would say, yes, let us understand the roots of human behaviour through scientific experimentation. Let us look into all the modes of ethical behaviour and see whether we can actually understand it in terms of animal behaviour. But of course, um, allied with ethological studies, that is, allied with understanding how animals behave, you must add onto that, under, that infrastructure of behaviour the remarkable property it, that we humans have of, at least in quiet moments reflecting upon the consequences of our actions. So I think the the roots, the scientismists would try to explore ethics in terms of a combination of the infrastructure of animal ethology and the superstructure of, of quiet reflection. And I can't see how that is worse than simply lying back and accepting authority. Now, what about emotion? Um, people would say, well, there are very special aspects of, of um, human emotion. It's inconceivable that a scientismist would be able to elucidate how people respond to to um, The the tribulations of life if you like but of course a scientismist would say in order to understand emotion reaction, love and all the and hate, all the human attributes of emotion we would look into the psychology of the individual we would look into the physiology of the individual, the release of hormones and all that sort of thing we would say that this is open to our investigation from a scientific point of view. We will not simply hold up our hands and say human beings are so complex and outside the reach of science that we will never understand the response of of humans to situations. I believe that a scientismist would say everything is open to to elucidation. Um, I, um, of course, closely related to the um, uh, question of emotion is the the role of the afterlife. This is the you know, one of the core aspects. Perhaps in my well, in my view, the the most evil of the core aspects of a religious understanding of the world only badness only evil stems from the concept of the afterlife and a scientism is would deny simply deny the existence of any kind of afterlife yes of course you can have immortality but uh, just as Mozart has immortality through his music, and Tutankhamun has immortality through tourism. But but, but the actual propagation of anything that um, resembles the continuation of the self can be denied by science. I suppose the rebuttal of that from uh, um, the theological um, viewpoint would be that science deals with evidence on this side of the grave, but has no experience with evidence of anything on the other side of the grave, so that we are within a shell of our own making and cannot look beyond the, the confines of that shell. That is simple nonsense. I mean, it is the case that science explores the whole of physical reality and in doing so it finds not one jot of evidence for an afterlife. And whereas most religious concepts are probably um, harmless, the concept of the afterlife is deeply, deeply harmful. Think of the ways that it enables people to acquire power and impose upon individuals and societies through fear of damnation. Think of the way that it quenches human aspiration on the grounds that, okay, in the next life they will have um, a better deal Think of the way that it encourages martyrs to end their lives. Think of the way that it encourages bombers to go to their 70 virgins. I think I can see no good whatsoever in the concept of the afterlife as propagated by the religious. And a scientist and a scientism is. Would say, I will accept the existence of the afterlife only if there were evidence for it, and there is not one jot of evidence. What about consciousness? Can science illuminate that extraordinary property of matter, consciousness? Basically, the sense of self-awareness, but of course, the great cloud of other attributes there. Or is it only that within ourselves, really, it, that we cannot explore? A scientismist would say that, of course, consciousness and all its attributes are open to scientific investigation. <coughs> Those. Uh, in a, in a way that's probably quite different from the elucidation of the periodic table, for example. I think the, um, the way that consciousness will be explored and elucidated is, as, I, as this slide alludes to, is through its simulation. That as we already begin to see the power of computation as computation becomes progressively and indeed seemingly unstoppably um, more powerful, then I see no reason why one day a computer will be terrified that the maker might turn it off. And so I think um, once we've got a, a computer that we take to be conscious then we can take it apart much more, we think at this stage at least much more readily than dismantling someone's brain except of course by accident when bits of it are chopped off by incidental accidents but of course if you have got a computer that is conscious and terrified that you might turn it off then you will have the ethical problem of whether you should turn it off or not. But I'm afraid we'll have to leave that worry to the later cyber scientists. So, But I think once you've, once you've made um, a computer that is in, in effectively self-conscious, then you can ex- start to explore all the attributes of consciousness which include aesthetic appreciation I don't see why taking up um, Peter's uh, um, point once again a computer through its television eyes cannot look at a rainbow and judge that it is beautiful I think there will be some limitations I think just as when we think of feminine beauty maybe as the right shape for childbearing, because of our our history uh, and evolution, Uh, a computer who has not gone through our evolution will not have the same uh, aesthetic sensibilities. So looking, it might prefer a woman who looks like a grey box rather than uh, someone who looks like an hourglass. Uh, But who knows, but this is all open to scientific elucidation. And to say that there is any aspect of the world that is closed to fruitful scientific explanation is, in my view, simply pessimism. What humanity has done is to stumble on this extraordinarily powerful way of examining the world And as yet, it has never run up against a barrier where its aspiration to explain has been thwarted. Um, Origins. Uh, Once again, um, Peter touched on this, and um, I, I was struck by a remark that he has made, or correct me if I'm wrong on this, it wasn't a remark made this morning, but it's a remark that you have written, where you say that in no way can we expect to be able to understand the origin of the laws of nature. I think you have said Indeed, you alluded to it on one of your Um, in a rather tangential way in your uh, later slides when you said that it's that deep fabric of reality that um, will forever be beyond our grasp. What I'd like to do in the next few minutes is to lead you to an understanding of the origin of the laws of nature. Uh, Simply to Show you that whereas a theologian and indeed a philosopher that has yet appear, might be very suspicious about a scientist's ability to answer, perhaps that one of the deepest questions of all. In fact, science is already moving towards an understanding. So let me take you through a variety of origins. Of course there are simple ways of accounting for everything and this is one of them Um, but accepting that there was a prime mover, a god who actually made everything is simply intellectual laziness of a cosmic order Um, so One of the great questions, of course, is the origins of the cosmos. Will it be possible, not sure what comes next, will it be possible for science ever to move towards explaining what is, I think, the biggest question of all, which is how absolutely nothing, and I do mean absolutely nothing, void, not even a vacuum, how absolutely nothing turned itself into seemingly everything. Now science certainly can't do that at the moment, but it's edging towards it. And it edges in an extraordinarily careful manner. It it is the tortoise to the theological hare. So the theological hare runs along and says clearly it was done by some prime mover. But the scientific tortoise accumulates information from every source from cosmology itself to fundamental particles themselves and it gradually moves back towards what is conceivably but not not necessarily the origin so um, we're getting there slowly and although it's taking a long time we are beginning to feel the the beginning of the universe is coming into view and that's an extraordinary thing, If, if there was a beginning Aquinas might be wrong I mean, it's conceivable, for example, that time is in some sense circular and that we're just seeing uh, what seems to be a linear part of it at the moment. When science discovers the truth, the philosophers will catch up with it. Um, The other big problem, of course, is, uh, on a much smaller scale, but still a big problem, still unanswered, is the origin of life how did the inorganic tumble into the extraordinary verdant organic did it require a touch of a divine finger or is there an actual way in which the inorganic can become the organic and life Emerge from the absence of life. Now, there are dozens of theories about how this can happen. Scientists currently don't know which, if any, of them is true, but none of them draws on the view that it was done by some kind of divine process. And the expectation is that. Once we actually know the conditions under which life emerge, and we don't, although there are many speculations about the composition of the atmosphere, the composition of the ground, the nature of clay, things like that um, then those the truth can be extracted from the speculations. Science does not proceed simply by speculation science is an extraordinary alliance of imagination and conservatism so brilliant ideas are the carrot if you like and conservatism is the cart that slows the rush towards the carrot and unlike in theology where there is only carrots science has those crucial carts gathering evidence sifting evidence, drawing conclusions. There's no reason to suppose that we need a divine presence in order to account for the transfer of rock into people. Um, The origin of the physical laws. Is it conceivable that the physical laws and their origin can be understood by scientists or is scientism pushed too far when it claims to be able to understand how the physical laws came into existence what I want to spend a five minutes or so talking about is glimmerings of the way forward when it comes to understanding the origin of physical laws. One um, answer, of course, is that a theologian, and indeed a philosopher of that inclination, might say physical laws are outside the, 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 the gamut of science's understanding. I want to try to show you that There are glimmerings of how scientists can see how scientific laws emerge and so deny that there is that particular barrier to the application of science. Um, So either you've got a God who gives you the physical laws and then we make do with them or you say hold on a minute Is is there an origin of law that science can identify. Here is an origin. I need to um, give you just a little bit of background to this. There is a most extraordinary theorem in mathematics. And we can talk about whether mathematics entails laws of nature. I mean, that is a kind of meta-question that um, might emerge later in the discussion, but let's, let's let me just take that as my starting point. There is an extraordinary theorem by um, a German mathematician Emmy Nerter which says that wherever you have a conservation law, you have an underlying symmetry. Okay. Now, conservation law is a law which says that something doesn't change. And one of the most famous and probably the most important of all conservation laws is the conservation of energy. Which says that you cannot create or destroy energy. You can convert it from one form to another but you, whatever amount you had of it on Monday you will have on Friday. Or enlarging that, whatever amount you had at the beginning of the universe, you will have at the end. So and the importance of the conservation of energy is that it's it's the law that underlies the whole of science. It really underlies causality, if you like, the fact that um, one event leads to another event, leads to another event, and so on. Without the conservation of energy, causality would collapse, and indeed science would vanish with it. Where did the conservation of energy come from? Did God say, let there be energy, and you're stuck with it? Or is there a scientific view? Go back to Emineta's theorem. The mathematics of the conservation of energy says that if time is uniform, so if time flows tick, 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 so on, then energy is conserved. If time went tick, 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 tick. Like it does in some lectures, of course. Then, then energy would not be conserved, and so causality would vanish, and science would be gone. So, you're beginning to see that to understand this extraordinarily deep aspect of the nature of science, the existence of causality, you have to understand why time is uniform. Now, there are other laws which are very similar to this. Conservation of linear momentum, when two balls bang together, the linear momentum before and after the collision are the same. A law of nature, let's call it Newton's laws. What is the symmetry underlying the conservation of linear momentum? It's very similar to this, but instead of it being the uniformity of time, it's the uniformity of space. So if space were uniform, they're all the same, then linear momentum would be conserved and we'd get Newtonian mechanics. Okay. So you'll begin to see that science is pushing towards understanding these very fundamental laws of nature. By looking behind them and seeing that you have to look for the uniformity of time. Can, say, a war of space, can a scientist push that further back and say, well, why is time uniform? Why is space uniform? I think, the, I think a scientist can. A scientism is they can say, what was there before the beginning of the universe? And there was nothing. And is nothing uniform or not? And of course, if nothing were not uniform, it would not be nothing. So, nothing has to be uniform. Suppose nothing happened at the creation. And in a sense, I could, in a separate Explanation show you that very little had to happen, indeed. But suppose nothing at all happened at the at the creation. Then that uniformity of absolutely nothing became the absolute uniformity of the space-time that we inhabit, and hence causality, hence the conservation of energy, hence the conservation of linear momentum. Hence, Newtonian mechanics. So, by stripping away what seems like a a whole barrier of understanding, you can begin to see how these very fundamental laws of science, laws of nature, emerge, not because the world was endowed with them, but because it's so natural that they should be there. The only question that might trouble you is notice theorem itself. Why is you know, What is the mathematics doing in this realm of explanation? But deep down, contrary, contrary to what you have written, scientists are answering the question that you say can never be answered. Namely, the origin of the laws of nature. There are other laws of nature as well. Let me give you a very simple law of nature. There's a law of nature that light travels in straight lines. Now, does God make sure that light travels in straight lines? Or, put another way, when God made the universe, did he say that light henceforth, let there be light that shall travel in straight lines? Or can we we scientists, we scientismists, understand this law of nature, a very trivial law, but nevertheless a law of nature? And I think we can. And the answer is not the uniformity that I've talked about before, but something alternative. What do we understand by light? We understand by light as a, a wave motion. There it is. And by the light leaves this bulb and arrives at this observer. There it is. There's the wave. Think of the wave actually as continuing all the way along there. Now think of another path. This silly path. This silly path will have a neighbour. That silly path. And think of the wave. starts out the same but by the time it gets to this other end, look, the trough and the peaks now coincide. And when a trough and a peak coincide, they wash out. Think of an alternative path, a straight line path. There it is. There's the wave. Think of its neighbour. There's its neighbour. And now look. Look carefully. You see that now the peaks coincide. They don't wash each other out Crucial. Allow anarchy. Allow light to travel everywhere. Each of these silly paths has a neighbour which washes out because peaks and troughs coincide. The only ones that don't is the straight line path, which has a neighbour which augments rather than destroys. So, all these silly paths have neighbours which wash out the paths. Only the straight line path emerges. You've got this wonderful case, let me summarise that in a single sentence. If you have anarchy, out of anarchy comes a law of behaviour. So you don't have to impose laws. Some behaviour emerges from the intrinsic nature of what you're talking about. Get rid of donation of laws to the universe. Simply allow anarchy and out of it emerge laws. You can take this further. Everyone here knows that quantum mechanics is all about waves and particles being indistinguishable. That the paths of what we think of as particles can be represented by waves. Why do particles travel in straight lines? Because they're actually waves that undergo this kind of anarchic behaviour, allow waves to go everywhere. Only the waves in straight lines emerge so that you get Quantum mechanics. And we all know that Newtonian mechanics is just a rather approximate form of quantum mechanics. So, anarchy also leads to Newtonian mechanics. To say that the laws of nature cannot be understood is quite wrong. We're beginning to see how the laws of nature emerge either from, they spring from nothing or they spring from anarchy. And I think the philosophers can take that remark and enjoy it as much as they will. It is probably as metaphysical as I'm going to get to today. So, my summary and conclusion, I've got my last two minutes, I see. Um, I think the best way of summarising this, what I hope can be perceived of as a, a peon to scientism, the fact that science, the scientific method, can elucidate all the deep questions of existence without limit, without limit, is really, first of all, that theology obfuscates. We've seen that um, this morning, yeah, rather wonderfully, I thought. <laughs> Although, of course, it was perhaps not quite clear that Peter was off skating. Um, Philosophy, if I can anticipate, will equivocate, and it is only science that elucidates. Thank you very much.
0: Okay, thanks for your patience. Um, uh, so we have one more speaker, the last 40 minutes up to lunchtime. Uh, the speaker is David Papineau, who's a Professor of Philosophy at King's College London. He's one of this country's, he's one of the world's leading philosophers of scientists. He's written and edited a number of books, including Philosophical Devices, which I think is available at the back of the hall. So uh, please welcome Professor David Papineau.
3: Thank you very much. Well, uh, I'm the philosopher here, and so I've got a very minimal PowerPoint. Uh, we don't go in for all these bells and whistles, so uh, where Here we go. Uh, all I'm going to talk about, I'm going to talk a bit about materialism, a bit about explanation, and a bit about philosophy. So, first of all, materialism. I want to try and persuade you that our world is a fully material world. We don't need to go outside physics to understand the constitution of everything in the world, the universe, I mean, not just Earth, but the whole whole universe. And I'm I'm going to uh, give you a little argument for this this conclusion. Uh, And the argument is that if we posit things that are non-material, then we won't be able to make sense of their ability to interact with the material world. They'll become epiphenomenal. They'll be outside the world that can have any effect on anything that we uh, know about or experience. They'll just be danglers. And this will include, if you suppose there's a non-material mind or some non-material supernatural being, uh, anything of that kind, uh, I'm going to give you an argument that... That supposition doesn't really make much sense in the light of modern science because in the light of modern science such things would be uh, epiphenomenal. They'd have no effect on anything we know about. Uh, Let me just give you a little argument about how this goes in the case of a supposed non-material mind. It's a very standard view that that there's the material world, there's our bodies, there's our brains, and then in addition there's... uh, uh, an extra realm, uh, the kind of aura of feelings and thoughts and pains and so on, and that uh, that's where, where we are, and that kind of comes down and influences the, the natural world through influ- influencing our bodies. That's a perfectly natural line of thought, but I don't think it really stands up to much examination. So there's the idea you've got some extra conscious feelings, thoughts, decisions and they somehow affect what's going on in your brain and uh, affects your body but now think about it from a scientific point of view the point of view of a, a physiologist or uh, a biochemist studying what's going on they'll find your, your body I mean, you decide to move your arm I just did it, I decided to move my arm to give you an example to think about and now the scientist wants to figure out what happened then when you moved your arm well, you're your muscles contracted and uh, uh, nerve messages came down and why did that happen? Well, something else went on in your your prefrontal cortex and sent messages to the the motor cortex. Why did that happen? Well, certain things went on earlier on. And from a scientific point of view, be able to expect to trace the chain of causation back as far as you wanted, just looking at uh, various uh, uh, biochemical uh, uh, material processes. So, what's going on now? We've got kind of the mental cause. I, I decided to raise my arm. We've got the, the physiologist's story. How do we fit them together? Well, I mean, one thing you might think is, is, is well, look, there's two different causes for my arm my arm moving. There's both, both the mental decision and the, and the neural processes. But that doesn't seem right. I mean, sometimes you get events that have... Two causes. Think uh, uh, philosopher's example: man, poor man, shot and struck by lightning at the same time, zapped twice over. And I mean, there's two independent causes there. And you'd say, well, I mean, the guy would have died anyway, even if he hadn't been shot because he was struck by lightning. I mean, you can see there's two different causes. That doesn't seem the right model here. We don't want to say, look, I still would have raised my arm even if I hadn't decided to, because my motor cortex was doing its job. No, I mean, do you want to say, look, I mean, even if my motor cortex hadn't done all that, I still would have raised my arm uh, uh, because I decided to. But that's what you would say if there were two separate causes. So there's an argument against dualism and for materialism about the mind. I mean, let me spell out the argument. We, we want to think we've got a mental cause. Of course we have a mental cause for my arm moving. There's a physiological cause that the physiologists will discover. And it doesn't really make sense to think that there's two separate causes. There's a mental cause, there's a physical cause. There aren't two causes. only way to square the circle is to say the mental cause, my decision, is just one and the same as certain neural processes, in this case in my prefrontal cortex. And I think that argument can be run generally. Uh, In general, any supposed non-material things aren't going to be able to make any difference in the material world. And in order to have things that you might have supposed were non-material, like feelings and thoughts, and so on, making a difference. You're going to have to identify them with things in the physical, physical world. Okay, that's a, that's. I mean, I think that's a knockdown argument uh, for a position which I suspect some of the people in the audience don't don't really agree with. And you might wonder, well, how is the trick being being done here? Uh, and I think the trick, I'm going to spell it out now, is, it's not a trick, but I'm appealing here to some very well-attested scientific facts, which over the last hundred years or so have forced us to recognise that the world is a material world. Uh, let me distinguish the argument I've just given from an argument some people used to give in the 17th century, it's always against Cartesian dualism. And once this dualist idea was first put forward, people said, that doesn't really make sense sir. How could a separate mental realm interact with the physical realm? That wasn't my argument. I have no principal objection to the idea of a separate uh, conscious dualist realm interacting with the physical realm. If there were such a thing, why shouldn't it do it? Uh, My argument hinges on some rather more specific scientific ideas, in particular the idea that if you start with my arm movement and start tracing back, you'll be able to give a sufficient cause for each thing that happens going back one stage further without leaving the physical realm. And that's something that Descartes and his critics in the 17th century wouldn't have agreed about. They said, no, no, you go back a certain point and you'll find there's some bits of the brain in the pineal gland Descartes thought moving in a way that you can't explain physically because something else outside the physical realm is making a difference. Perfectly cogent idea. And I take it nowadays we have scientific evidence against that. There aren't any cases of, of uh, uh, things outside the material realm <coughs> making a difference to what goes on inside it. And this is a fairly recent scientific discovery. I mean, I think many people don't realize how recent it is. In, in philosophy, materialism is now a pretty dominant view. There's surveys done, 90% of English speaking philosophers are materialists. But that happened 50 years ago. Uh, When I started doing philosophy, this wasn't the case. Materialism came in in the 50s and 60s. And it came in as a result of scientific discoveries. It's very interesting to trace back the relatively recent history, last couple of centuries, on this matter. Modern science views the the movement of matter as due to, to force fields. Uh, so, I mean, this is how we've done it since Newton. There's gravitational there's forces, electromagnetic forces, and, uh, and classical Newtonian physics doesn't put a kind of uh, definite list of forces into physics. It leaves it pretty open what forces might be discovered, and Newton certainly thought in addition to gravitational forces and magnetic forces, there were... Special chemical forces and forces of cohesion, and many Newtonians. Not clear whether Newton himself also thought that there were special vital forces, both forces responsible for the development of living bodies, and and special mental forces. In the in the 18th century, there the were great debates and uh, investigations into forces of irritability and sensibility. These are extra forces that arise inside. Uh, the, the bodies of, uh, of sentient beings. And from that perspective, there's nothing at all odd about the idea of, in addition to all the, the physics and chemistry, there's this extra thing, this extra Thunder Force field in the, in the brain uh, that affects our, our bodies. Now, this idea started coming under pressure in the middle of the 19th century with the discovery, Peter referred to, Peter Atkins referred to, of the conservation of energy. And that made scientists realize, well, if there were any such special forces, they would have to be rather strictly law-governed in order to conform to the conservation of energy. They had to be governed by a force law that ensured that any kinetic energy was turned, uh, uh, that disappeared was stored as potential energy and then paid back and so on. And uh, in the 19th century, there was a huge debate at, at the point when the conservation of energy became generally accepted because many people saw immediately... This somehow undermined the idea of an autonomous mental realm that somehow was independent, autonomous, self-governing. It made everybody realize that if there were such a thing, uh, it would have to be rather strictly law-governed. And that made people very worried about about. Free will, uh, associated issues. I mean, some historians I've, I've seen argue that the conservation of energy was more of a blow to the religious worldview in the 19th century than Darwin's theory, for just this reason. In fact, the conservation of energy didn't completely knock out the idea of non physical influences, it just required that they be uh, uh, consistent with the conservation of energy. So you all know the phrase nervous energy. I mean, somebody's full of nervous energy, they're kind of twitchy, they're all ready to go. Uh, this is a 19th century phrase, and it was meant quite literally in the late 19th century. Nervous energy was the potential energy of the nervous force field. Uh, many, many scientists, uh, most physiologists, uh, Freud, uh, had the idea that there was this uh, nervous force field, and in In reflection and deliberation, you built up the potential energy of this nervous force field, and then when you acted, it was released into kinetic energy and your body moved. Uh, Rather uh, neat idea. Uh, So we don't think like that anymore. Uh, Why not? Well, I think the answer is not just the discovery of the conservation of energy, because as I say, that's consistent with the idea of dualist uh, forces, uh, non physical forces. Conscious uh, influences on the material world. It's because uh, of mainly 20th century research into what actually goes on in bodies at a cellular and subcellular level, and an awful lot of is now understood about this. And there's no trace of any movements of matter that can't be explained in terms of the basic uh, 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 electrical, nuclear, uh, gravitational, gravitational forces. Uh Huxley and Hodg- Hodgkin in, in the 50s uh, the mechanism of, of the transmission of neural impul- impulses across cells was a crucial, a crucial thing there. It made people uh, convince most people who knew about this stuff that there weren't any extra uh, conscious, separate uh, influences there were just a lot of chemistry and with that uh, you've got many people accepting and I think kind of for the first time it became a generally accepted view that everything was material. Certainly in philosophy, you suddenly got, in the 50s and 60s, a whole bunch of smart people saying, well, if that's right, if, if all the physical processes themselves have physical causes, well then, the mind must itself be physical. And that's now the dominant view, certainly in, in my circles. Uh, look, it's, I'm appealing here to what's known about... The physical nature of uh, the processes in our bodies. Of course, we don't yet know everything there is to know about physics, about the laws governing matter. I mean, I kind of think of it in terms of quantum mechanics and <coughs> uh, a few basic force fields, gravitation, uh, uh, strong nuclear force. Weak nuclear force, electrical and maybe they're the same force as the last two. Uh, and uh, that's it. Uh, but I'm sure that in 20 years' time, scientists will think about a lot of this differently. Perhaps they'll start to think that our four dimensions are a low energy projection of more dimensions, and it's all done in terms of string theory. And I don't think current physics is at all the last work. But what I do think we have strong evidence to believe is that whatever further physical discoveries are made, they aren't going to show that there's some special, vital, or mental forces, something other than basic processes uh, found outside living bodies making a difference. And that's why I think that we've now got ample evidence that everything in the natural world is material. Uh, So that's materialism. Uh, Let me now start saying something about explanation. And what I want to say here is that, okay, everything is physical, but that doesn't mean that physical science explains everything. But what I will try and argue is that everything that's explainable is to be explained scientifically, even if not physically. Uh, Let me say something which I haven't especially intended it's not on the, on the slide, but, but both the last two speakers focused on quite a lot, which is the question of, what about the explanation of physics itself? I mean, I've got a lot of things here, I don't know, uh, uh, complicated processes that can't really be explained in terms of basic physical laws. You don't explain I'll, I'll go into that in a minute. Lots of the things that we know about and we can kind of understand pretty well. We don't explain it in terms of physics, just because it's too complicated. But let me first of all say a little bit about the question of explaining physics itself. So Peter Peter, one Peter Williams, said, well, of course physics can't explain itself. And therefore you've got to go outside physics to, to metaphysics or possibly theology in order to explain physics. Uh, I think that's a bad thought. Uh, I'm inclined to agree that physics can't explain itself but but to deny that therefore you have to go somewhere else to explain it. Uh, And that's because of a basic point. Explanation has to stop somewhere. You can explain A in terms of B and you can explain B in terms of C but uh, there's going to come a point where you get to something that doesn't get explained in terms of anything else, it's explanatory bedrock. And uh, until Peter Atkins started saying the things he said at then, I was just going to illustrate this with respect to what I regard as rather more basic than the conservation of energy, namely the conservation of momentum, or maybe just the law of inertia. Any, any, uh, Material body moving with a certain velocity will carry on moving with that velocity until it's acted on. Very basic law, kind of. That really is the foundation of all, all modern physics. And I was going to say, well, you ask me why is that so? Well, I just say that's, that's how it is. It's natural. And if you tell me, well, no, you need to explain that, and therefore we should posit a supreme being who has decided to make matter conform to this law. I'm going to say that's not a better explanation than the one we... I mean, the the no explanation is perfectly natural things that happen. Why think that that, that you need to explain these most basic natural facts? Now, in in fact Peter Peter Atkins offered us some explanations of uh, conservation of energy, conservation of momentum, in terms of the symmetries of time and space, and suggested that these were somehow forced on us by the fact that the way the the Big Bang, the origin, came out of nothing. Uh, Maybe, maybe you can explain these apparently basic things in terms of even more basic things. But even then, you're going to be stuck with something. What about the laws which tell us that nothing is unstable and will turn into something? I mean, physics is interested in laws like that, and you might want to ask, what's the basis for them? And I think at some point in physics, we're going to get to a point where we say, look, this is a perfectly natural way that things behave Mm -hmm. Peter Atkins did slip into that that form of speech a couple of times. It's based in the nature of things. And I think we have to say, well, that's how it is. Uh, Explanation has to stop somewhere. And I feel that bringing in a more complicated metaphysics of supreme beings or theology is not giving us uh, better explanation. It's just giving us more explanation, which will itself require explanation in turn. Uh, Let me quickly say... I've got more to say about philosophy than uh, explanation. Let me say a little bit about why I think that everything is material. I don't think that the way to explain everything, where explanation means helping us to understand, appreciate, see how things work, a kind of anthropocentric human thing explanation, it's something that gives us understanding. I don't think it follows from the fact that everything is material, but the way to understand things, to explain things, is to try and derive them from the basic laws of physics. I suppose you're puzzled about climate change, and somebody says, well, it's due to the build-up of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Very good explanation. Is that a physical explanation? Not strictly. I mean, you haven't, you haven't derived the, 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 the global warming, the climate change, from the carbon dioxide by, by any appeal to Schrodinger's equation anything like that. Uh, rather you've uh, well, the, 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 the climate scientists, they, they build models they, they postulate various influences on the climate, they test their models they make simplifications, they try and derive some kind of uh, uh, quantitative way of understanding these processes which owes pretty little to basic physics. Uh, I mean, we all think I mean, climate scientists and me anyway that these are all physical processes that we think it would be a mug's game to try and predict how the weather is going to change by appealing to the equations of basic physics. You have to move up a few levels of description and try and derive some equations and test them directly against uh, the the climatic facts to get any kind of uh, human-based understanding of what's going on with climate change. Maybe... Uh, a super brain uh, uh, the classes, uh, uh, God could kind of derive climate change from basic physics but for us human beings we have to do something uh, which involves simplifications uh, as I say it's not because things aren't material but because they're too complicated to understand using the equations of basic physics and we have to start using other tools to to understand them. I think this point applies across the board. I think there are things that we want to explain that are material, but are too complicated even for uh, using the kind of quantitative methods that are used in climate science. Think about the Arab Spring, American foreign policy. Uh, How are you going to explain that? I don't think anybody should start building quantitative models. You need to appeal to facts of of history, politics, understanding of individual individual psychology. Uh, often we understand things in terms of of literature, not even politics and history. I mean, if you want to understand Victorian social structure and social changes, you'll probably do well to read. Uh, George Eliot, Dickens, Tronetti. Uh, then, I mean, you get as much out of that as you would get out of history. Uh, I mean, novels do other things as well as explain social changes, but that's one thing they help us to understand very well. Now, I don't think these things I'm saying show that we want to explain things in a non-scientific way. They're just elaborations of the point. we we, we don't necessarily want to explain things in terms of physics, and so we have to use various simplifying models to understand what are in fact very complicated material processes. Now, I don't want to get bogged down in the definition of what counts as science. You might say, look, somebody doing history or uh, writing novels about uh, rural England in the 19th century, they're not doing science. Maybe so. But I do think that what they're doing, if it's worthwhile in this respect in helping us to understand and explain what goes on, what they're doing needs to be based on objective empirical evidence. And I think that applies to. Uh, n- not all novels are helping us to try and understand some actual social structure, but if they are, they need to be informed by information about what really goes on. I mean, the point applies to climate change models, it applies to political theories, I think also applies to to socially relevant novelists. I mean, if somebody is telling us, look, here's how to understand Victorian England, and they've just made it up, and it bears no relation to the facts of industrial 19th century Britain, then that is not, not a good novel in this respect. So I think that all explanation needs to be scientific explanation, based on objective evidence, even if it's not strictly physical explanation, Peter Williams said, "Look, you can't take the view that everything needs to be explained scientifically, because what about your principles of evidence and your theory of knowledge? I mean, I just, I just said, it. I mean, I want everything, including uh, uh, novel-based social understanding, to to answer to." ...objective empirical evidence? And you might say, well, that sounds like a reasonable idea... ...but aren't you now being non-scientific... ...in saying that we have certain standards of evidence... ...certain standards of uh, 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 testing and grounding our beliefs? Now, this is an interesting question... ...but as it happens, I think Peter Williams is wrong here. I think that if it's a good idea... ...to form a belief about some subject matter just in case you've got certain kinds of evidence with uncertain kinds of reasoning, you ought to be able to show that that's a good idea by showing that those kinds of evidence and those kinds of reasoning are a good route to the truth on this subject matter. And that an epistemology that isn't based on empirical evidence about what's a good route to the truth is not going to be a good epistemology. Peter Williams said, well, don't we have to take it for granted prior to any empirical investigation that in general memory is a good guide to facts about the past? I think that's a terrible example. Uh, There's lots of empirical investigation into whether memory is a good guide to facts about the past and it turns out it's not a very good guide. In fact it's a shockingly bad guide and it's a terrible thing that people have relied on it so much. There are many people in jail now because uh, courts tend to believe eyewitness testimony even though there's lots of evidence that eyewitness testimony is wrong. I think, I mean, I should have, if I'd known Peter was going to say this, I would have brought the figures, but there's something like 200 people being released from long-term prison sentences in the United States because of DNA evidence going back to the occasion of their crime, often many years ago, and a significant majority of those 200 were in jail because of false eyewitness testimony. So, memory is not, in general, a good guide to the past, and we found that out by conducting empirical investigations. And I think, in general, anything we think is a good guide to forming belief, we ought to check whether it really is a good guide by using methods of empirical investigation. Now, there is a little element of bootstrapping here. Uh, you're going to use methods of empirical investigation to check whether they're a reliable guide to the truth. And there's some interesting, delicate questions of onus of argument priority in figuring out how that makes sense, how you can uh, use a technique to check its reliability. But if you think about the memory example, it's perfectly clear that you can and you should and you would be doing a bad thing if you didn't. I think epistemology itself needs to be scientifically based. Uh, Anybody who's desperately interested in this, my thousand nine hundred ninety two book Philosophical naturalism has a couple of chapters explaining how this bootstrapping bootstrapping works. okay, let me now finish with saying some things about philosophy. so I too am a scientismist. Uh, I think everything is science i 'm with with Peter Atkins here, but I want to put in a defense of my own subject philosophy and uh, I thought Peter was going to have a more of a go at philosophy and I would therefore have more to answer to, but uh, he only just kind of had a few uh, throwaway insults, he didn't give us any arguments, but uh, despite that I'm going, to, I'm going to tell you why, why science is uh, important and uh, uh, necessary accompaniment to, to science. I actually think that philosophy is entirely in the same business as science, uh, Am I in a majority among philosophers in thinking this? It's not. It's not clear. I mean, it depends what you count as the same business. Uh, some philosophers think that philosophy just is the same as science. They kind of hang out with uh, uh, scientists. Uh, they even do experiments and so on. I don't think that. I think philosophy has different methods from science. To that extent, I don't think it's just the same as science. But I think it has the same aim. It has the aim of developing uh, coherent, uh, not definitions, but theories about what's going on in the world, and in particular developing theories that fit all the observational evidence. So, why do I think that philosophy has different methods from science? I think that comes out of the fact that philosophy, while, I mean, philosophy and science are in the same business of constructing theories that fit the facts. But there's two kinds of problems that can arise when you try and construct theories to fit the facts. Uh, One might be that you don't yet have the observational facts to test your theories, you have a nice clear cut theoretical question. And you now need to do an experiment. And then you do the experiment and you find out the answer to your question. And that's what scientists are good at doing. They're good at doing the experiments. And so, I mean, Einstein says, look, space is curved. Uh, Is this true? We go and do an experiment to see where the the stars seem to be when the the light's coming near to the sun. And we find out Einstein is right. Uh, We're puzzled about the structure of the atom. Is, Is the negative charge spread uniformly through it all, and so we shoot some particles at some atoms and we we find out the answer. Nice clear-cut questions, we do some experiments, we find out the answer. Philosophy, I think, starts with quite different problems. Philosophy starts when we're in some kind of theoretical tangle. Uh, We've got some paradox. Uh, uh, is there free will? Uh, well, yes, we have experience of free wills. Is there free will? Uh, uh, no, but the science tells us the world is deterministic, or at least, if it's not deterministic, it's completely governed by uh, 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 objective natural laws, statistical or deterministic, and that seems to rule out free will. So we've got kind of two natural lines of argument that tell us p and not p, and now we we, we don't know what's gone gone wrong, and we we have to try and unpick our assumptions to see why we've gotten to this tangle why we're being led to paradoxical conclusions. Often the assumptions that are getting us into trouble are ones we don't even know we have. We have to kind of un- unpick them. We have to look into our thinking to see, see what's driving us astray. Now, there's kind of traditional philosophical problems which fit this model. I've just given you free will. I mean, does, does time move? There's good arguments that I mean, does move. Good arguments doesn't move. We're in a terrible tangle. Philosophers try and and, uh, figure it out. But it's interesting that this kind of tangle doesn't just arise in connection with traditional philosophical problems. It also arises can arise anywhere. I mean, here's my favorite example. When it arises, we've clearly got a philosophical problem even though it's not a kind of traditional philosophical area. My favorite example is why do mirrors reverse left to right and not upside down? So you stand in front of a mirror, you wave your right hand, the guy there waves his left hand. You wave the top of you, he waves the top of you. Top of him, I mean. Uh, so mirrors switch things around right to left, but don't switch things around top to bottom. But there's the mirror, it's just a square thing. So, I mean, it's got the same, uh, uh, it's the same in this direction and that direction. And the light's all going the same in this direction that direction. So how come the mirror... Right, so you see, uh, it shouldn't be reversing in one dimension but not the other, but it does. And that's a, I mean, in fact, that's a very nasty philosophical problem. There is a little literature on it, and nobody's quite happy about any of the answers. It's a very trippy little business. Uh, and, I mean, this is not important to anything else. Uh, nothing hangs on it, but... There's these two lines of argument giving us opposite conclusions, and philosophers suddenly get agitated and try and figure out what's going on. The same kind of thing happens within science. It happens a lot within science. Uh, uh, logic of natural selection is group selection possible? Well, uh, why shouldn't there be selection between groups? But uh, selfish individuals within any group will, I mean, and so there's a lot of debate in philosophy of biology. Which is now, if you think about it, addressing directly theories that matter in the philosophy, in, not in the philosophy of biology, in biology itself. Quantum mechanics. There's a horrible tangle about how to understand quantum measurement, the collapse, the, 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 the supposed collapse of the wave function. And it's a classic philosophical problem. is Line of argument leading to one conclusion, line of argument leading to another conclusion, and it's not clear to how to how to fix it. I'm running out of time. I was going to, I was going to give you the Tower argument, which is my favourite uh, philosophical problem within physics, and it's relevant because it's what led Galileo to formulate for the first time the law of inertia. It's what persuaded us that we weren't at the centre of the universe anymore, and we're just one. Uh, little planet among many solar systems drifting along in our little region of the uh, big thing. Tower argument used to go like this. Uh, if I drop a body from the top of the tower it's an argument against Copernicus. Look, it falls at the foot of the tower. But if Copernicus is right the, the land will have shot off, can't remember, to the west or the east in the time so, so the ball ought to have dropped over there and so Copernicus is wrong. And for a long time 50 years, this persuaded most people that, yeah, Copernicus was a lot of nonsense. Galileo thought long and hard about this. And it's a very hard thing to figure out. He, well, The easy thing is, oh no, well, look, in the frame of reference in matters of doing physics, the ball isn't falling straight down it's shooting off to catch up with the foot of the top. Ah, and, and Galileo has a lot of stuff about how you might notice because you're moving along too, So, but still in, in the right frame of reference, it's moving along. But then Galileo had another problem. Why is it moving along like that? It was just dropped. Nothing pushed it off in that direction. And so he had to figure out for the first time that bodies carry on moving with the velocity they've got if nothing stops them. Aristotle physics thought that if nothing was pushing you, you just stayed still. Aristotle figured out no to make sense of Copernicus. That was not something involved in experiment. That was hard <coughs> theoretical, philosophical work. You might say, but hang on, I mean... That's not philosophy. That's science. I well, thought Galileo was a scientist. I don't want to worry about uh, kind of accreditation. Who's a scientist? Who's a philosopher? Uh, the interesting thing is that that's a philosophical problem within science. And by and large, scientists don't like thinking about philosophical problems within science. They're trained to do experiments. Philosophers are trained to think about philosophical problems. Uh, sometimes some of the greatest scientists are inclined to think philosophically too and then they solve these philosophical problems but they're philosophical problems right in the middle of science and they need solving so science while it can explain everything right, I'll sum up now uh, uh, science while it can explain everything needs the help of philosophy in order to get its theory sorted out and I'll stop on that point Thank you very much.
0: Okay, so welcome back. Uh, My thanks again to uh, our two Peters, uh, Peter Atkins at the end, Peter Williams sitting next to me here, and David Packenow in the middle. Um, So you had an opportunity to listen to them And then you had half an hour to digest What they said And so now you all have some fantastic Questions uh, To ask them But I would ask you to keep them Fairly brief and snappy okay? Otherwise I'm going to cut you off (laughs) So keep them short And sweet and relevant Um, I don't want to hear points Right? I want to hear questions And we'll be finishing at 2.30
4: 2.30 shot, okay? So we'll get away on time. So, uh, put your hand up if you have um, a question, so let's
0: see. Good, okay. Well, this person near the front <laughs> conveniently. Uh, yeah, if, if you just hang on one second and we get microphone and then we can all hear. Thanks. Awesome. Uh, just just for a question
4: do You, uh, I think, alluded to what appears to be a zenos paradox, where a little regression has to have some sort of finite mm-hmm. natural end. Mm-hmm. My question is, although the Professor Atkins said that science is capable of determining that finite end, you said it has, it has to be determined by us without relying uh, on science, if the science is incapable, you that, know? How do you know when
3: uh, I'm not I'm not sure. Um, I don't know which concept, this is the regress of explanation. So you might explain one thing in terms of something else, and my thought was, well, at least in physics, you're going to get to some basic laws at some point, and then you'll see stop, you'll have to stop, and some things are going to have to be taken as and not explained. Now, it's true, in the history of science, we keep on managing to get a bit further, and the things that I was suggesting we might have to stop, if I've done a fuller talk about the observation of momentum and energy, Peter was suggesting, well, science can now explain that in terms of certain symmetries. And... Uh, I'd be happy to have So Peter, <laughs> do you think there's a natural stopping place or should science always keep looking for further explanations of wherever it's got to? Well, I think in the instance
2: that I gave, the natural stopping place was the mathematics of the theorem that related symmetry to conservation. So once you've got that theorem established, which is a theorem within mathematics, then you've got, effectively, the end of explanation. You can answer, then, uh, what is mathematics? And then you can say that mathematics is just a kind of a logical concatenation of concepts, um, or whatever. Uh, but I think that you're at the end of physics when you've got an equation. Can I decide, I'm sorry, but I don't know to uh, be too adversarial, but I don't think that would be a good, a good I mean, there's
3: there's the pure mathematics where you can prove theories, and then there's the physical reality which one uh, intends, one has in mind, is going to have the same structure as the mathematics. But then it's an empirical fact that the physical reality has that structure, not a mathematical truth, and uh, 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 that's something which has to be taken as given. It's not mathematically proved. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs>
2: if, if that's yeah. not adversary adversarial what, what is it when you okay. are adversarial okay. I, I think I, I, I think um, it, the great actually we're, we're drawing out of this a very deep question I think and, and, and I think the, the deep question is why mathematics works as a description yeah. of physical reality and I think that is a, a deep question the, if we Understood the answer, and maybe if begin to see the answer in some way, that would, I think, bring us together.
3: It? Good, I mean, th- that's exactly what I, I had in mind. I had a view about the relationship between mathematics and physics that I was pleased but I think perhaps we aren't going to be able to finish this out here in the time. We've <laughs> <laughs> only got a margin the size of Fairmount.
0: Yes. <laughs> yes. So we uh, well, go to the next question? So, um, gentlemen in white are uh, here the Sorry, uh, oh, I should be picking people near the microphone. I'll of the exercise. My question is about the significance of attaching ism to science, um, I'm science and turning science from science into scientists because the whole point to me of empiricism is that it's based upon actions and events that have already taken place and upon the analysis of those actions. Um, do you think that by its action isn't to science that you're creating something dangerous and normative because you're turning it into something that is describing purpose and meaning in a way that science shouldn't? It's, it's looking for rather
2: than backwards. I think it's oh, a yeah. uh, quick i just got one line up there. I think it's in order to render it um,
3: derogatory. So I said I was a, a doctor this terminology a scientismist but it's slightly, slightly odd thing to confess to being scientistic because scientific, I think is generally understood to me taking scientific ideas and methods and applying them where they're not going to be useful and helpful and even I think that sometimes happens. People take Simplized scientific ideas to apply in one area and then try and apply them somewhere else. So the idea that certain traits are uh, genetically controlled and then they apply them to homosexuality or uh, other things that aren't genetically controlled and uh, I think that's probably called scientific. I wouldn't want to be a scientific person who thinks that you can apply science uh, more widely than it should be, but where uh, to draw the line? I mean, then, well, there'll be cases, there'll be cases, and cases, and uh, I don't think science can tell people what's important. I don't think science should tell people what to do. And I think if somebody comes along and says science can do that, that's a mistake. Uh, uh.
2: Oh, uh, sorry, I don't want to. This no, no, I oh, you know. Come in, mate. I think scientism is, okay. the way that we're using it, is that science should be as far as it can be in the hope that explanations will emerge. And if we run up against barriers mm-hmm. that are just too big mm-hmm. for science, then we just have to say, well, that's a higher-order phenomenon or something.
0: Peter Williams.
1: Yeah, oh. yeah well, I'd actually be happy to agree with Peter Atkins on that one. I'm not saying we should arbitrarily limit where science can look. Um, but just to address the, the point that the questioner raised, it, this distinction between um, sort of describing reality by looking, looking at it, looking back at it, and then you raised questions of sort of meaning or purpose, and we also had questions of, of how should we behave, as different from a, a merely sort of ethnographic description of how, how have people behaved, or how do people behave, that to raise the moral question of well, how should we behave, I think used to raise one of those questions um, that is sort of brushed off the table by a scientific approach to knowledge, um, that that tries to um, say all all questions are within the, the domain of science. I think that's precisely the kind of question you raise um, that pretty obviously isn't uh, within the domain of science. Well, I think it is. <laughs>
2: I, th- I think how should we should behave it somehow comes into um, Accepting conventions, somehow seeing what leads to the stability of societies, and I don't see why one can't analyse using a scientific empirical approach um, that
1: kind of question. Um, Briefly, so, well, and then I'll, I'll let can you i Can I? I do,
3: so, so, so. so I, I, my ideas about shoulds and morality are very much in flux, but. So I don't have clear views on this, but here's one thought. Science can tell us, look, you should do this because, and then it will adduce some empirical facts, that if you do this you will be be healthy, society will flourish, if you don't do it uh, uh, there will be strife and uh, 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 disease. Uh, So it can tell you you should do these things because that's what will come out of it. Somebody who starts asking, well, why should I care about... Being healthy, about suffering, and so on. I'm not sure that science has got much more to say, but I'm not sure that anybody has much more to say at that point. Somebody who's asking, "Well, why should I care about suffering?" seems to be asking a bad question. If you don't oh. care, well, it's it's kind of it's kind of tautologist it seems to me. I mean, look, somebody I say, look, if you do this, it's going to cause. I mean, that poor child is going to suffer, and they say, "Well, I see that, but." Why should I not do it? And I say, well, okay, not only is this going to cause a child to suffer, but it would be wrong. And it seems to me, adding, and it would be wrong, isn't really doing much work. If I've got somebody who's not moved by suffering, it seems to me that uh, I'm clutching at schools for I hope they're going to be moved by my saying it's wrong. But then... That, okay. Yeah. But then you have to
2: ask, why... Why do societies result in people who are altruistic and who do look
3: after people who are suffering, and so on? And I think that is a to mm-hmm. no, no, scientific Very, very interesting mm. interesting question. Mm. But but note that somebody who isn't altruistic, you're not going to somehow persuade them to be altruistic by looking at the evolutionary explanation of altruism. I mean, it's, mm. it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's not defining <laughs> a sugar. No, but the science is about understanding. It's not necessarily about
0: prediction. Good, good. Let's have good. the next question. Now, he's near a microphone. This gentleman down here. Um, <clears throat> is a moral value judgment
1: expressed by an atheist inferior to that expressed by a man of faith? Not to be the religious or not. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> okay. but, uh, I am of the position that an atheist is equally, if not better, able than a religious person to recognise the moral value of various states of affairs, to recognise that you should not torture small children just for the fun of it, etc. Um, And that they are well able of mounting good uh, arguments in defence of certain uh, moral uh, rules, moral normative systems for helping you to uh, guide your action, etc., etc. Where I would make a distinction is, uh, given that one uh, is a moral objectivist who thinks there are such things as objective values and duties, that I think the difference comes in the question of which worldview can best explain the existence of such a thing. So um, I, I think you know, uh, an atheistic moral philosopher like Ross schaefer does an excellent job of defending the existence of objective moral values and he can recognise them and he can defend their existence and so on against the moral subjectivist. But when it comes to the question of, well, how come there is such a thing as, objectively speaking, the right thing to do, which worldview best explains that, then I simply think that a theistic worldview best explains that fact. Is that your answer
2: just because you're a talker of the BHA?
1: No, that, that, that is my answer mm-hmm. whenever I've addressed that issue in all of my published works mm-hmm. uh, and all of the talks that I would have given on it, which you can look up for free online. On. Yeah, that's the
0: really main playground, as well,
1: isn't it? Yeah, anyway. yeah as, as far as I understand it, that, that is the, the standard um, yeah. Christian philosophical position. Like that. I mean, even to give you a biblical reference for this, so this, is, this is the biblical view. Um, St. Paul in the letter of Romans says that even the Gentiles who do not have the law. Uh, show that they have the law written on their hearts because their consciences now Now, on one occasion condemns them, on another c- occasion says, no, they've done the right thing. So the, 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 the biblical New Testament position is you don't need to believe in God or believe in the Bible or any of that in order to know and uh, on occasion do the right thing. Uh, come on. Uh, I
3: think I've, I've, I've got a thought, but it's not quite an answer to the... Question: It's just on your supposition that you've got a better account of the nature of morality than me. And uh, as far as I can see, it both accounts hinge on the idea that some intelligent being has certain aims and purposes. Now, I have the aim and purpose of avoiding needless, needless suffering, causing. Human well-being, mine and others. But many other people have that aim. Two people I trust that I want to associate with all have that aim, and that's kind of good enough for me. That's going to give me reason to do all kinds of things. Now, you tell me that's not good enough, and there's some other being, and he has certain aims, and that somehow. Underpins my doing the things that I do, and I think, well, hang on, why do I need another being? What's that adding? What was wrong with my purposes? Why does there have to be somebody else with the purposes to whom I'm subservient? It seems it's like like an explanation of just the same kind as I already have, but one that's adding some extra stuff that uh, is not particularly helpful.
1: Sure. Well, to give it again, we have a a marginalia of uh, opportunity to make responses here, don't we? But. I think given that there are objective duties and values in the world, um, there must be um, some sort of normative standard that is independently something we, we, we discover rather than we invent. So it transcends you or me or us. We can ask questions like, is such and such a culture pursuing the values that it ought to? Um, is that a value um, lessening human suffering that I am objectively obligated to pursue? And so on. So there's this, this transcendent objective quality to these moral facts that we encounter but on the other hand moral facts like duties obligations seem to only make sense within a personalistic context so if there's some sort of moral fact of the matter to which I am wholly and rightfully obligated uh, and which um, prescribes my behaviour you have to I think explain it in terms of something that's transcendent but personal um, and that, that are categories which a metaphysically naturalistic worldview doesn't provide you with.
3: This is dangerous talk in Conway Hall. You're going to get it? <laughs> <laughs> You want to have a go? Well, Sorry. <laughs> First of all, I think we atheists, uh, in, the, in the views of God, uh, uh, um, are a much better creatures because we don't need
2: the reward in heaven that you can in us. Our promise. So we are absolutely generous good um, and I also think that if I want to search for my own um, foundation of my own moral code it would be something like and, and I need to work on this but it would be something like uh, not, not to thwart the aspirations of others because we're not That's all equal, equally lucky accidents some of us are luckier accidents than others, of course. On the whole, we're just accidents on this earth. And so, in a sense, we're more or less equal in the eyes of the non-God. Um, and so thwart, not thwarting the aspirations of others it seems to be quite a good code. Now, of course you have to draw the line because there are some people like Hitler whose aspirations should have been thwarted. But since he was in the business of thwarting the aspirations of 1000000s he you've got a pretty good moral reason for thwarting his particular aspiration. But on the whole, you get, you get by in this world by not thwarting.
1: Sure. But of course, the moral argument I just enunciated was not an argument about moral motivation, which is what you would be criticising by talking about, you know, you're only behaving morally because you believe in a god with a big stick in the sky. Mine was an argument about moral ontology, um, explaining what kind of thing is an objective moral value. And again, uh, for purposes of argument, i could be perfectly happy to agree with Peter Atkins that we we can all recognise the objective value should be... um, We should um, promote everybody um, having their way unless they're um, doing the opposite kind of thing. But the question is, is that itself something I am objectively obligated to pursue? And if so, what ontological view of reality, which worldview best accommodates the existence of such a fact which we jointly recognise?
3: So, let me address this. Sorry, I'm no. not Let me, let me address uh, this ontological argument quickly. I mean, I've already said I don't really see the idea of a super-being adds much to the fact that here we are, human beings, with common dispositions to achieve certain aims, prevent certain ills. Now, you're worried that, well, that doesn't give us much objectivity beyond what we're commonly disposed to do, and you'd rather have a higher authority. I actually think this is a positively dangerous idea. I mean, think about the case where this matters, where you have two communities who disagree about what's to be done because they have fairly basic dispositions uh, which diverge, and in that situation, it seems to me, the best thing is for one side say to the other, well, look at what's going to happen if you do this, you're, uh, you're repressing certain people, you're causing suffering, you're going to store up trouble for the future, uh, and appeal to uh, considerations like, like that. Now, one would hope that if they're, as we say, in the wrong, that will, that will persuade them. If it doesn't persuade them, it doesn't seem to me a very helpful idea to say, and what's more, you're wrong, right? Because they're going to disagree about that, and it just looks like a recipe for disaster. To bring in this big ontological stick as an extra consideration over and above, pointing out the suffering benefits and so on that will follow from their actions, seems to me just a
1: bad thing. But then, uh, I, yeah, sure. briefly, yeah, I'm not bringing in the ontological stick as a motivational stick yeah. I, I'm not joining in the pragmatic conversation of surely you can see if you behave this way certain results will, yep, will yep. follow um, it's, it's purely a matter of um, arguing which world view is, is true or not yeah. um, which as a philosopher I think matters as well as the, the pragmatics of how people oh, behave if, if you
3: could stick to that that would be, uh-huh. a, that would be a good thing
2: <laughs> the bottom line is that society has stumbled in to what you are calling, calling sort of moral objectivity.
0: Shall we have another question? Uh, yeah. Now, I think this gentleman in the hat, just, just here. Oh, no. Sorry! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oops! <laughs>
1: You have. My science so. <laughs> if science can't solve it, do you discard it? Yeah. And, and why is that? Okay. So I think I think the question is, and I'm checking with Gretchen there. Um, it, uh, do, do should we say if science can't solve it, should we discard it as a, as a sort of non-question uh, and, and say, well, only the only genuine questions are questions that science can at least in principle answer, um, which just generally, generally is to raise this question of, of should we adopt scientism um, as our as our theory of knowledge, uh, and um, you know I'm, I'm going to say no, and I gave my reasons in my talk, and said yes, and maybe, maybe um, David wants to respond in the middle. But, um, but I think, I think no. Um, you don't just give up on science because we haven't found the answer yet. As, as Peter says, uh, you shouldn't um, introduce arguments from ignorance um, that say, or oh, because I haven't got a scientific answer, therefore my favoured theological or supernaturalistic answer must be the right one." Um, you want to avoid that, certainly. Um, but. The other bookend is, I think, the importance of actually thinking through maybe there are some metaphysical questions that have metaphysical answers to them.
0: Thanks. Sorry. Uh, this, 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 I'm hoping he's a gentleman. A question for Peter
3: Williams Is it important to worship
2: fun because God says so? What does God say? Is it wrong to worship him? Because it is, and as a
0: wider
1: question, if God were to come down to Cornwall now and announce that He is good you His children, who would you side with, God or your moral feelings? <laughs> <laughs> good. Okay. Uh, so we have two questions. One is the, the, the famous Euthyphro dilemma from from Plato's dialogues, but updated in monotheistic terms. So, is what's good, according to me, good because God says so, or does God say so because it's good? If if I say, well, it's good because God says so, uh, then that makes morality arbitrary, depending upon God's whim of his will, rather than objective and absolute and so on. Um, If I say, uh, no, he says so because it is good, then the idea would be, well, that means that the good uh, is something that is independent of God's will, and therefore, and this is the mistake in the argument, independent of bringing God into the argument. But it's a false dilemma because there is more to God than his will. Uh, so the standard reply from the theistic side here is to say, um, of course, uh, it's not, generally speaking, to put the writer for later, that things are good because God says so. He says they're good because they are. But the fact that they are, although it's independent of his willing, is not independent of his character and existence. God has a, a certain uh, essence, a necessarily existent character. Uh, which is the standard of, of the good? God is the good, in Platonic terms, and in line with that character, he will issue uh, his commands and obligations to us. How do you know? mm. Well, uh, the, simply, simply as <laughs> simply as a reply to the to the Euthyphro dilemma idea that that, that the theistic grounding morality c- commits. Uh, Falls into the Fitzio Demo to point out that it's a false dilemma and that there's another option is to show that the objection doesn't work.
0: Does that imply a higher power than God which prevents God from saying? They're ready. No, 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 no. we have Peter?
2: Yes, if, if we were to broaden this discussion um, away from the safe, Teacher's um, Christian perspective and look at the Quranic. Then we find that as the Quran got dictated or written, then God was constantly changing His mind, having to correct Himself at various stages. So there are examples of um, of God taking different decisions, depending easy. upon the needs of Muhammad.
1: Uh. Only, I, I think. <laughs> Yeah. I, I mean, I'm not here as a representative of Islam but I, I do believe within Islamic theology there's much more an emphasis upon God, God's, God's will rather than character um, whereas it, within the Christian tradition it, it, it's more the character that is the centre so God is love as it says uh, in the New Testament and then in line with that loving character he will uh, adduce certain obligations upon us Let's have another question um, person right
0: at the back uh, we'll and i anyone up there want to ask a question? Yeah, so. uh, oh, yeah. Okay. This is my question to the teacher
3: um, Does atheism bestow
0: so an evolutionary advantage either to the individual or to society? Oh. <coughs> I'm going to go to Peter well, at the end. Peter. Peter's Yeah. Peter <laughs> I don't know. It's a short answer. But but I think maybe the case that in the
2: early days of human evolution, then belief in a deity possibly did have advantages for stability and so on, encouraging warriors to go out and do things. Um, in, In the modern world, I would have thought not much advantage, really. And probably a better, more
3: advantage now to be a disbeliever than a believer. It's a, that's a very interesting question. Somehow, I've never really thought about it. So there, there is a standard view that, which which I I find plausible, that that the tendency towards religious belief is a it's a kind of scandal, it's a a side effect of our inclination to see agency in nature, which is much more widespread and clearly of an evolutionary advantage. We we, we can detect animals tell them from the stones and so on and react. Accordingly, uh, still um, there seems to be a question of whether it was advantageous or not and historically it might well have been advantageous. You might feel that if it wasn't advantageous, there would have been selection pressures either of an individual genetic kind or of some social kind against it. But then it looks like an empirical question. It would be very interesting to look mm-hmm. through history and see how many atheist societies there were. I mean, did they get selected out because they uh, were deficient in disadvantage in this way? Were there different circumstances that conduced to atheism in different societies? The, uh, uh, Chinese societies tend to be less religious. Uh, very interesting. If I can kind arrived at it, I think
2: also there's a difference between... Um, monotheism and polytheism. Polytheism can absorb, whereas monotheism can't, uh, because you can, if you've got a, a hundred gods, then you could easily extend it to 101, you just bring in one more
4: attribute. Whereas if you've got monotheism, you've got to go kind of protect that god. Hmm.
2: And so there is a difference in, within belief, as well as between
0: belief and atheism. Yeah. <coughs> uh, so, it's on the balcony you ask you, Did you want to ask the question? So I'm we'll going to ask it yell <laughs> it. Very loudly, we'll repeat it back That's good. Um,
1: There's been a lot of talk about um, saying we can define um, objective morality on the atheistic worldview Due to the fact that the atheistic worldview tends to lead to the conclusion that we don't have free will does it make sense to talk of us Uh, having an obligation to do something and
0: doesn't ought imply can interesting question so uh, in a nutshell it was uh, does ought imply can if we lack free will can we be morally obligated to do anything at all and isn't atheism in effect committed to not having free will I'm not sure about that but I'm going to pass this over over to Peter again to begin with me? Yeah, oh. go on. You, you have a stab at that. <laughs> i have a i would going to try and go on. <laughs> <laughs> um,
2: we do have freedom in the sense that um, our response to input is unpredictable. I mean, just as if you take a double pendulum the most the simplest physical object you can imagine apart from an actual pendulum you know, one pendulum coming from another pendulum then it, it's, it's, or its condition is quite unpredictable after a short time and I think our brains are much more complex than some of us though we're just a double pendulum and, um, and so it's inconceivable really that a precise prediction About future behaviour can be made about uh, a brain in any environment. But there are neuroscientific studies of decision making, which is very interesting, where the brain takes decisions before you are aware of them and you simply act them out, which really undermines some aspects of what we mean by free will. So, in a sense, I'm disputing your premise. Rather than. I don't understand why you seem to think
1: that because it doesn't seem that we can, in principle, predict human behavior, that therefore means we do have free will. It's purely contingent that we can't predict. I mean, we may have evolved our better brain, that would allow
3: us to predict. So I don't don't really think that's a. Can can I I come in now? I kind of agree with the comeback of the question, but in, in this respect, I don't think it's a good idea to argue for free will on the basis of unpredictability. So, uh, what can we? uh, There's my uh, there's there's my son. Uh, He's uh, about to be evicted if he doesn't have some money. I've got some money. It's entirely predictable, I'm going to, you could bet your house on it, I'm going to do this. I mean, There's a situation where it's for sure I'm going to do it. Does it follow from that, that I'm not acting freely? Of course I'm acting freely, it's a paradigm of acting freely. So, the the contrast isn't between freedom and uh, determinism, it's between freedom and being determined by the wrong things. If somebody manipulates my brain or holds a gun to my head, then I'm arguably not free. But, but if your, I'm, if family, your it, family is holding a gun to your head... <laughs> no, no, so you, you let me finish. I mean, if, if, if in that sense my family is holding a gun to my head, that's precisely the case where I am acting freely, where I'm acting freely... I mean, sorry, where, where I'm determined through a chain of causation that goes through my character, through my beliefs, through my awareness of what's happening, through my, my aims and desires, and leads to an action. It might do that in an entirely predictable and deterministic way, but provided the determination... Goes through my character and my aims and ambitions, then that's a case of acting freely. And uh, where people aren't acting freely is where they're being manipulated by by some process that doesn't go through that route. So I don't think there's anything in determinism or materialism to rule out free will. Well, uh, the
1: your, your idea is that your beliefs your, and your aims, yeah. they are themselves a product of antecedent causes.
3: So, uh, so and, and what I say is that if we think it's true, should give us no reason to feel I'm not acting freely at all. Mm. What, you, want, you want my beliefs and my desires to kind of arise by when and cause me to act? That wouldn't be a case of acting freely. That would be a case of acting at random.
1: Uh, uh, yeah, I think that's a, a false dilemma to say, either um, at random or um, d- determined by things. I think free will, agent causation, acting for purposes and reasons and so on. I think I agree with what's implicit in the in the questioners uh, position i that I detect there um, I think um, we do face a choice between um, libertarian free will that aligns with moral responsibility or determinism and I think they're a pretty strong case for saying if you're if you're a naturalist or if you're a materialist you um, ought to be a determinist um, and um and actually sort of just bite the bullet and say no uh, with people like Dawkins and Will and so on uh, and just bite the bullet and say no we, we don't have the kind of moral responsibility um, that links with um, what you were talking about about uh, objective moral values and so on um, so um, I mean I think if, if you were to argue um, purely physical systems uh, behaving according to the laws of physics uh, don't have libertarian free will um, human beings are purely physical systems behaving according to the laws of physics. If you, if you accept both premises, it purely determinism follows. It seems to me the only way to really escape that argument is to deny that people are purely physical systems. I don't think your way of
0: getting out of it works <laughs> either. Uh, We're all in trouble. That's fair. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so um, who else should <laughs> be? Okay, yeah, do you know what? That's true. I'll be coming exclusively to that side of because I, it's just because they're they near and I just might to bring that. Okay, uh, Yeah. Um, do you think that
1: mathematics um, is discovered like science through observing the um, the world, and the universe, or it's thought up like um, um, philosophy
0: and thought through people and developed by people? My observation.
2: I think that goes right to the heart of what we were alluding to earlier on about um, the reason why mathematics works as a description of the physical reality. I mean, it's quite extraordinary, really, that this supreme Creation of the human philosophical mind, if you like, the mathematical mind anyway, um, maps so wonderfully onto the workings of the outside physical world that it really does point to being more than a coincidence. So um, I think as we move towards a deep understanding of the nature of physical, physical reality seeing more and more the the role of mathematics in it. We'll move towards an answer to that kind of question.
3: So, uh, where where are we? Uh, It's a bit is it? Made, I think mathematics is made up. I think mathematics is a kind of story about uh, what may as well be a fictional world of numbers and sets and so on. And it's kind of set it's outside space and time. And down here is the physical world. But the physical world does have various kind of complicated structural features that are very nicely modelled by thinking about these abstract objects. And uh, that's how it is. Now... Uh, isn't it amazing that the abstract objects we have here are just the ones that you would need to model the structures that the physical world has? I don't think it's an accident. I think we've developed those mathematical models precisely with an eye to giving ourselves a way of modeling the structure the physical world has. So I, I don't find it as mysterious as some people do. <laughs>
2: I, I, I think quite the opposite. <laughs> yeah? Uh though we're on the same side, uh, I actually think that it's it's a deep it's a clue about the deep structure of the fabric of reality. And I, I think we
0: can't go beyond that at the moment. Let's have another question from on this side of the room. So person can only see what person with a hand up, so maybe that's why I uh, had asked <laughs> anyone from that side of the room. Yeah. Hi, I have two questions. Uh, firstly, when you, you did accept that you can't really disregard a policy because you have found scientific evidence for it first, but then later you said that um, the afterlife is nonsense and that its concept was harmful, but as of present, what scientific evidence have you got to prove that it doesn't exist to come to such a conclusion? And secondly, regardless of the actual title, can science solve every mystery? When a terrible disaster strikes, why is it that people turn to a higher power as opposed to the laws of nature or physics? On the
2: second, religion is so much easier than science. I mean, you don't have to work on belief, you just slip into it. Whereas to understand anything in science you can work really, really hard and people just can't be bothered or give up It's too much of a challenge. I think that's one of the drivers of the great importance of scientific communicators to help people see the the depth to which science can go in revealing the the nature of reality. as to the first one, the evidence for the afterlife. Um, well, there is none. Um, not one idea of evidence. Uh, the afterlife is driven by um, corporations, that is, institutions of religion, who find it a supreme method of control um, of the behaviour of individuals, and internally by individuals, ...who can, cannot come
3: to terms with the prospect of their own annihilation. Uh, do you want to answer at this point? I, I, I've got a
1: rather abstract epistemological observation to make. Oh, okay. A- um, hmm. uh, I mentioned earlier in my presentation, my book, Understanding Jesus, Five Ways to Spiritual Enlightenment. Um, there's a chapter in there on uh, the historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus... Uh, I could also um, so punt you to uh, <laughs> I could point you to a very thick book by M. T. Wright or Michael Lycona, works by Gary Habermas, William Lane Craig, or Richard Swinburne's The Resurrection of the Son of God. Um, so that's
3: interesting because this is slightly different from the question. This question, you you were you were offering positive evidence for various religious doctrines. Your your proposition was. Where was the evidence against the afterlife? And I think the right thing to say to your question is, look, the absence of evidence against is not a sufficient reason for belief. I mean, if there's no evidence either way, we should suspend belief. Uh, Bertrand Russell's famous example. Maybe there's a teapot orbiting in there with uh, asteroids. And... Uh, I've got no evidence against that, so should I believe it? No, I should suspend belief. And given the initial enlightenment of it, I should have a very, 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 very low degree of belief in it uh, uh, in the absence of any positive evidence. And that's kind of what I feel about the afterlife too. If you've got positive evidence, that's a different thing.
0: Lady over there.
4: No, i would glad to hear Mr. Atkins' reasons for thinking that uh, philosophy is very useful. It's not very useful. <laughs> when did I say that? <laughs> <laughs> well, you're uh, accepting philosophy, yes. it's more
2: possible. Yes, I think I think um, the, the position I take on philosophy, not the hood of philosophy, I, I think this doesn't apply to moral philosophy and political philosophy with prudence so uh, It applies when philosophers interfere with science, like you were talking about earlier today. Um, and indeed all your examples were of science rather than philosophy, um, I, I think philosophy tends to be pessimistic, whereas science is, is, is driven by optimism. Scientists go out suspecting and hoping and believing that their investigations will be fruitful and lead to elucidation. Philosophers are constantly tugging on their cake tables saying, you can't get there, you, you, you can't understand that, you'll never understand that, all that sort of thing. So um, the way I put it before um, is to do a Turing test um, on two people, one a philosopher and one a scientist, put them behind a the screen Ask them all the questions you want. I think you can tell which is going to be the philosopher because they will be largely and philosophical and pessimistic, whereas the scientists will be much more optimistic, hopeful. And, well,
3: that's true, isn't it? <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know which philosophers you're... Thinking of, maybe you've been talking to me too, too many of your colleagues in Oxford, but a lot <laughs> of philosophers I know aren't like this. Here's, here's a nice children's test. So we get them the two of them behind the screen, and then we say, Look, I've been reading a few elementary books on quantum mechanics, and this business of here's a wave function that's spread out, and then the electron interacts with. Uh, measuring apparatus and suddenly the wave packet collapses instantaneously across the distance. That doesn't really make much sense to me. And one behind the screen says, oh well that's that's very puzzling, you better try and think about it. Maybe we aren't thinking about the theory in the right way. Maybe there's some stuff that quantum mechanics doesn't tell us about yet. We better investigate it. And the other one says, don't be silly. The equations work. You can make predictions. That's not the kind of question
1: we ask in lectures. Uh, you're not <laughs> cut out to be a physicist. <laughs> Which one do you think is a
3: physicist? <laughs> <laughs> <Thank> you, <laughs> <but
1: scientists>. <laughs> <laughs> They're both natural philosophers, of <laughs> course. <laughs> okay.
0: Gentleman uh, over there. Because we're near a Thank you. Well, I was wondering what you thought had more validity. Starting out with mathematics and going into
1: scientific principles, or going the other way? Where um, Einstein provides most of these things thought, and then only uh, a bit of mathematics course at the end, whereas Newton did nearly 400 with maths and then went into scientific principles towards the end. Sorry. Way was more valid.
2: Well, I think it's a false dichotomy. I, I think that, you know, that the way that science progresses is in this extraordinarily fruitful um, collaboration of theorists and observers. Um, and to say you know, one is following the other and the other one following the other, I think that's a false dichotomy. I think it's. Um, and it would be wrong to set it up as a dichotomy as well. And it's, it's, I think the essence of science, um, at all levels of science, really, is collaboration.
3: I, 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 I agree with Peter. Okay, this is another question.
0: Um, this, this gentleman has had his hand up for ages. <laughs> so... Yes, Peter Williams, you mentioned, although it's a question for everyone, you mentioned this idea of verified religious knowledge. I haven't got the the phrase right. I found what you were talking about very interesting because you're talking about an anecdote from JP Morland about someone realizing that they've kind of somehow tuned into some verifiable knowledge
4: about an individual in the audience. You also talked about a heroin predicting some kind of
0: downfall.
1: Sort of, the to <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. Certainly. Um, one would want to run the numbers in a sense on that kind of um, I suppose there are examples of specified of, of design detection by specified complexity, aren't they really? Um, but also I think how plausible you think those examples are is going to depend upon the worldview assumptions you're bringing to it. And I mentioned in my talk about the way in which if one thought that philosophically one had justification for belief in a certain um, metaphysical worldview, in a, yeah, one thought one had good reasons for believing that a certain purported revelation was a true revelation from God and so on, that context would be epistemologically key in, say, how seriously you took certain religious experiences, so that it wasn't just the experience on its own that I was appealing to. Um, Certainly, if you want to use that kind of experience to make an argument for God or something, you're going to be placing a lot more weight uh, upon that argument than you do in the day-to-day religious life of the normal believer. Um, so there was slightly sort of two different parallel points that I was making with the examples
0: can I, well, Am I allowed to make a point? i that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> can I just grab the microphone tell yeah, you do it? Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I had a similar concern about those particular anecdotes because it seemed to me that if I believed in psychic powers, for example, if that was the worldview that mm-hmm. I arrived with um, I, would, you know, I might agree with your comments that philosophy and science might support uh, belief in psychic powers might do. I mean, I don't think it does, but it might do. And you made the point that, well, it might possibly validate religious experience. Well, it might possibly validate psychic experiences too. Possibly. (coughs) It it might do. And then you went on to trot out three anecdotes of the sort that you would find on Psychic Sally's website. I mean, she'll, she'll say, you know what, this happened, I predicted it, and the very next week it happened and then All of those kinds of basis are just part of the course in the psychic world. So I'm I'm, I'm now looking at your belief system and the belief system of the psychic, and I I, I, I want to know why one is considerably more rational
1: than the other one. Okay. Uh, Again, that's going to come down to the two two elements, the background beliefs and the particular beliefs. So I I agree with you about the, the key thing of this. Well, it might be thought to, the key question is, does it or does it not? Because I'm approaching this from a viewpoint of thinking, and I think it does support this particular philosophical religious position. As someone who's approaching it with the thought that, that actually, philosophically, it doesn't, I can see why rationally they're going to disagree with me, because we have this prior disagreement. So that is key, but also then it does come down to things like running the numbers and, and trustworthiness of the witnesses and so on, whether or not you think the guy is just making out or lying, whether you have... Um, in some of the examples I, I gave, so with, with predictive um, fulfilled prophecy, whether you have good historical evidence that a certain prophecy existed before the event that it's meant to prophesy, whether or not you have good historical evidence that the prophesied event actually happened, whether or not the prophecy is such a Barnum statement along the lines of the sort of things you can read in your horoscope in the newspaper every day, that it has a lack of specificity that means there's no significance to it, whether you think, it, you know, does it have that specificity? Uh, Does it meet it? Uh, What is the evidence? And so on, obviously, I was just bringing up some examples. But I I agree, those are going to be the key questions to ask, and your differing opinion of the answer to those questions will determine your opinion of the the examples. And there's a certain
2: naivety in examples anyway. I mean, even the... Um, prediction of the fall of the Temple that was written in Gospels that were written well after the uh, event. Well, I would dispute that historical claim mm-hmm. uh, I, I, I think in more, in the modern day examples that you might care to comment on in your final 30 seconds mm-hmm. is when the test of being a saint when in the Vatican the doctors have to say that it is inconceivable that this has an actual medical explanation. It must be due to the intercession of John Paul with director with God. That means that these doctors are incompetent. Not they're making a correct judgment.
1: Uh, well, I wouldn't like to um, comment on the professional uh, uh, conduct of um, people outside my realm of expertise, but one would certainly want to ask, ask questions about the, the prior motivational structure, as we've just asked. But I'd certainly dispute the historical claim of, about the, the prophecy example, and I could certainly point to many other examples. Um, uh, 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 well, that, that's, i have point you to my chapter, because i only got 30 seconds, to the chapter of my book on Fulfilled Prophecy in the Understanding Jesus book, uh, which goes through very much what, what is the specificity of the predictions when is the historical evidence for it existing how far prior to um, the fulfilment, what is the historical evidence of the fulfilment, what would one calculate in a very conservative manner the, the odds being and so on and those are all very sensible questions I agree to ask about it I'm not, I'm not asking for a credulity uh, of trust in here but I am asking for an investigation uh, of the actual data and where it points um, vis-a-vis relative to what background beliefs are bringing to that data are being important as well.
0: Mm. I think that's where there's a key word there to use, to verify, suggests all that thought to be done. Sure, I, I think we're right about out of
1: time. i this going to make a sense to you.
0: Thank you very much indeed. Thanks for coming. Mm-hmm. Please thank the Raffin. you Right, right, I hope we'll see you at the, the next one.